Welcome to Not Just Pretty Pictures, a podcast that celebrates the written word, the art of storytelling, and the writers who write those stories. I'm Eric Rutherford, and I will be reading these stories of triumph and truth, detailing the journey behind the pretty pictures with the hope to uplift along the way and find the commonality between us all. Today's piece is by Ryan K. Russell, the first openly bisexual NFL football player. The Grief of Men by Ryan K. Russell. I grew up with two dads. Well, kind of. Not really. I say kind of because it's not in the way you think. It's not the fun two gay dads living their best life, dressing me in all the designer clothes and late night television being RuPaul's drag race instead of Nickelodeon. No, my dull, heteronormative upbringing consisted of a biological father and a man who raised me that I called my father or stepfather, though he and my mother never married. No, the not really part is because I didn't technically grow up with them. My biological father wasn't in my life. The man who raised me died in a motorcycle accident when I was seven. Life's hard enough being queer, unbearable at times being black in America, and loss feels like torture. After my stepfather's funeral, my mother and I were always surrounded by people who cared and loved us. We were living with my grandmother and grandfather, and the doorbell seemed to ring every hour on the hour. And in any other scenario, my Jamaican grandmother would not be happy with the incessant noise, but with the recent loss, people coming by to check in on us were encouraged, especially males. I was a boy blessed with two fathers and cursed to lose them both. Other than my grandfather... I had no male role models in the house. I spent time with my uncles, who were actually just close friends of either my mother or my stepfather, but they were considered family. I went on long rides with my uncles, sometimes going back to their place and watching sports, or sometimes just going with them to go to their friend's house and talk about things I knew nothing about. Still, these were manly conversations they wanted me to be around. And these guy hangouts seemed vital because they were for men and men only. There was this fear that my masculinity would suffer in some way without my father, or maybe it would be taken from me as well. So the only clear answer was to expose me to more masculinity in insurmountable doses. How many years and ways we men look to protect our masculinity when really we need protecting from it? Every man told me the same thing word for word. You're the man of the house now. Seven years old, no job, no diploma, no sense. And somehow, instead of being able to grieve, I was thrust into this new daunting role I knew less and less about. Replace. Keep going. Don't cry. Don't feel. Don't stop. Keep going. As a young child, I respected adults and listened to what they said, sometimes without question. So I became the man of the house, or at least what I had observed as I approached it as simply as my mother instructing me to eat my vegetables. I wouldn't cry over my stepfather, not for years. I started opening the door and answering the phone, always asking people who they were trying to reach or see and what their names were so that I could remember them and report back to my mom. I felt like a guard dog. Protect your family. I was sure men did this. I couldn't provide 
which I was sure was another role that men were expected to fulfill. I wanted to help my mother who began working two jobs to support us both. What can I do to help? She told me that my job as a child was to go to school and get good grades. I didn't see how this would provide for my family other than provide my mother some relief knowing she wouldn't have to worry about another thing with her busy schedule. I respected adults, my mother most so, and I made sure to get good grades, protect and provide. Everything else didn't matter. Even more so, everything else was a hindrance. I shrank my emotions. I shrank myself. All the delicate, soft, loving parts bled the most when I hurt. And men didn't hurt. So the delicate parts had to go or be replaced. Replace, keep going, don't cry, don't feel, don't stop, keep going. Almost 20 years later, Joe dies of cancer. I met Joe freshman year of college at Purdue University. We were both football players and we quickly went from teammate to best friends. March 2017, Joe, his wife, who I introduced him to in college, and I went to New York City to celebrate Joe's birthday. Upon arrival, Joe complained about pain and loss of feeling in one of his legs, but wrote it off as complications from an old college injury and tried to enjoy his birthday celebration. The next day, Joe is practically dragging his leg around New York City, and the following day, he can't feel his leg at all and starts losing sensation in his abdomen and his other leg. Joe and his wife, Rachel, cancel their tickets back home, and we rushed to a hospital in Hell's Kitchen. We waited for hours until Joe was finally seen. And of course, it was impossible to find out the cause of such severe symptoms in a short time. But what we didn't expect was for Joe to be in the hospital for over a month. I had to leave New York to go back to Dallas for workouts and OTAs, organized team activities. So I sent my mother in my place to keep an eye on my best friend's health. It took so long to get the news every day, sending texts, prayers, and well wishes. But as soon as we knew, I wish we could have waited longer. Or even better, we could go back in time to when Joe's legs worked better than most people on our football team and before they found a cancerous tumor crushing the base of his spine. I had lost my grandfather to lung cancer at 15. Another male figure in my life was taken from me, but my granddad was older. Joe had just turned 26, literally a month before being told he had stage 4 spinal glioblastoma. The events that preceded Joe's diagnosis are sleepless, drunken, and tear-soaked. I remember taking flights to see him at the drop of a dime when his wife would send texts about a critical fall in his condition or fears that this might be our last time to say goodbye. This would proceed for almost a year. Every false alarm was the end of the world until that day actually came and put shame to all the rest. On my final visit to Joe's, Joe was in a disgruntled sleep and entirely unresponsive for everyone besides his wife. I was one of the first people coming and visiting, but others were sure to come. Joe was loved by so many. That night, I held his hand and told him that I loved him and that I would take care of and watch out for everyone he loved, his wife, his sisters, his grandparents, everyone he loved, I loved tenfold. I was a pallbearer at Joe's funeral, and I was speaking as well. The venue for Joe's service was intimate and packed with people who wouldn't miss this moment for the world and flowers from those who hated that they were missing it. 
I remember making it a point not to cry. I was one of Joe's closest friends, if not his closest, and I said I would take care of things from here on out. In my mind, that meant no tears. I tried to reminisce on the good times with family and colleagues of Joe's I knew. I even took to cracking jokes that I knew would have made Joe laugh. Replace the tears with laughter. Keep going. Don't cry. Don't feel. Don't stop. Keep going. It was one of the few times in my life I truly had an out-of-body experience. I felt myself, my real self, standing beside Joe's open casket holding his cold hand as I wanted myself, my body being puppeteered by my masculinity. I was carrying on the same way I had at his wedding, entertaining and checking in on people, helping some to their seats and trying to rehearse my speech in my head. When the time did come for me to speak, something happened. I was telling an old college story about how I was too drunk one night and Joe, being the reliable friend he was, came to my rescue. I had a ton of these stories and they were always a good laugh when I recounted my drunk babblings and Joe's very sober, rigid disapproval, even though he was always laughing with me the whole time. But somewhere in this story, I got lost. I glanced at Joe lying there so still. Lying there, not laughing at all the parts of my story he usually found hilarious. And feeling a soft, loving, delicate feeling started screaming inside me. I'm not sure if I finished the story, but tears welled up in my eyes and I said, I miss him. I miss him so much already. Hadn't I buried these parts of me? At least concealed them in the public eye when I knew it was time to be the man? I couldn't hide this. I couldn't destroy it. I couldn't replace it. And when it came to my speech, I couldn't stop crying or stop feeling. I couldn't keep going. I had to stop. My manhood left little room for me to cope. But I tried to kill these feelings instead. I drank more than I had ever consumed in my whole life. I got into relationships more as distractions than romantic pursuits. Yet the most dangerous thing I did was stay silent. Suffering and those who suffer want healing and retribution, but they long to be heard first and foremost. As defined for young black men, southern men, and football players, manhood teaches you to never cry in public, never show pain, rub some dirt on it, and don't let them see you sweat. This is the opposite of what the suffering soul needs. I spent years protecting and serving my manhood when my manhood has never protected or served me in times of need. Speaking about my pain, my loss, or my struggles wouldn't bring Joe back to life, but it would allow people to be there for me when the person closest to me couldn't physically be there himself. The question was how? How do I share my experience, my pain, and my truth? I fell in love with writing at such a young age. The writing was something I did alone. It never made me feel lonely. In fact, it made me feel seen. I could write exactly how I felt down on a piece of paper and it would be no judgment, no hate, no fear, just truth, reflection, acceptance, self-acceptance. At first I started writing about my experience with grief, but then with racism, 
my own sexuality, football, growing up, and everything in my life that masculinity or manhood had muzzled me from sharing. This helped, but my suffering needed more. It needed to be heard. I started going to a local poetry night off Fairfax and signed up to read some of my work. It was terrifying, spilling my deepest, darkest secrets to strangers, but my masculinity wasn't in charge anymore. This was something my soul longed for. Also, I wanted to talk about Joe, keep saying his name, recounting his life, keep him alive in my heart. After sharing, people came up to me and gave me both praise and condolences, not in an intrusive way, but enough to make the pain subside, if only for a moment. This is what I needed. And if strangers could give it to me in small doses, I could only imagine the effect I would have if I shared it with those closest to me or even the world. What happened next was primarily out of my control and part of my privilege of being a professional athlete and having connections, but there was a book of published poetry, Prison or Passion. I continued to share my story and I thought I was confronting a lot of my demons both privately and publicly. I also attracted those who had similar stories and felt seen by my words. I was building a community mostly of men that tried to redefine what manhood meant to them in their own ways. Manhood and masculinity won't protect you, so stop protecting them. Maybe you don't have a love for writing, but I'm sure you have love in your life. Share your suffering with your family, friends. Put it constructively into your art, work, or hobbies. Speak up and allow yourself to be vulnerable. You will see that there is more strength in that than in any preconceived notion you had about masculinity. You don't have to make some huge announcement. Start small. Start a little scared. But make sure you start. Replace your definition of manhood. Don't run from your emotions. Don't hold back your tears. Don't stop people from coming to your aid. Keep going. Keep growing. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you to Russ for sharing your story and your words. Your heart is big, just like your talent and your biceps. I'm grateful to know you and call you my friend. Join Russ and I in the next episode as we talk about men and their emotions, dealing with grief, and growing up as a young black man in Texas. Not Just Pretty Pictures is hosted by me, Eric Rutherford, produced by Courtney and Phineas of Stereotype Studio, supported by you, the listener. A big thank you to our friends who shared their stories with us. If you want to support the show, please subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.